Well, I'm curious this morning, I was thinking about this this morning, just by show of hands, how many of you in this room right now are wearing a cross, either a necklace or a ring or something along those lines? Okay, a few, a few. How many of you own something like that? Okay, more. How many of you also have one on your wall, somewhere in your house, a cross somewhere in, on your wall? Okay, uh, most people in the room, somewhere, either in their home or wearing it or in their jewelry box, have a cross, right? One of the most common symbols that people wear. Uh, not only Christians, in fact, but also non-Christians. I was reading an interview not long ago uh, with, of all people, Madonna, the uh, pop singer. And uh, anybody who's followed her career knows that she wears religious imagery a lot. She wears crosses. Now she, by her own words, she's not a Christian. She doesn't claim to be a Christian, but she grew up in a Catholic home. And uh, in this interview I read, she said, you know, crosses are just sentimental for me. Uh, They have sentimental value. They remind me of my childhood uh, when I was growing up. And so she wears a cross because it makes her feel good. Um, Crosses are everywhere. I was uh, looking this week to try to get a sense of some of the more dramatic depictions of crosses in the world. And I thought I'd share a couple of them with you. Uh, This right here, this is in Lithuania. It is called the Hill of crosses. Now, it's an interesting history, at least to me. I don't know if you will find it interesting, but uh, people have been putting crosses on this hill since about 1830. Uh, during a war in Lithuania, when people couldn't find the bodies of their loved ones who died in the war, uh, they would come and put up crosses to remember their loved ones. Now, what happened over time was this hill became a place where people would ex- uh, express their dissatisfaction and rebellion against the governments that ruled over Lithuania. So it became a particularly important spot in the middle of the 20th century when communist Russia was occupying Lithuania and they would not allow people freely to worship Jesus. So people would sneak out here in the middle of the night and put up crosses and the Soviet government came and they bulldozed it. And then it would fill up with crosses again, and then they'd bulldoze it, and it would fill up with crosses again. It's estimated today that there are more than 200,000 crosses on this hill in Lithuania. The power of the symbol of the cross. A little bit closer to home, uh, this is in Groom, Texas. Some of you may have driven by this or seen it. Groom is near Amarillo. This is obviously the tallest and biggest cross in the state, Maybe, probably the biggest one in the country. There's one in Florida that's a little bit taller, but this one is wider and thicker. It's 190 feet tall. You can see it from 20 miles around. Uh, It's built by a ministry that said, we just want people as they drive through to think for a few minutes about Jesus and the cross. I saw this and I thought, you know, we're about to build a building in a a year or two. Maybe we can build a taller one, you know, on top of the... (laughs) On top of the facility, ours will be 191 feet just to get them, you know. Uh, but I thought, man, what, what a powerful visual image. Now, I show all of that just to say uh, the cross is everywhere, but I'm not sure that a whole lot we, we reflect upon what it actually means. Uh, it's interesting, for the first couple hundred years of church history, the church did not use the cross a whole lot as a symbol for Jesus, And the reason was because the cross was not considered something to glory in by a large percentage of the population. Instead, the cross was a symbol of shame. They did not sing hallelujah 
for the cross all the time because they saw it as a symbol of shame. Even though when you read the New Testament, it's clear that the cross is at the center of Christian theology. Many Christians were embarrassed. In fact, the very first depiction in art, and I use the word art loosely, the very first depiction in art that we have of Jesus on a cross is actually a graffiti in Rome making fun of Jesus. Somebody drew on a wall in a house a picture of a cross with a donkey on the cross and inscribed underneath it, it says, Alex Samenos worships his God. To make fun of this guy, Alex Samenos, who had become a Christian out of the Roman culture. That is how the pagan culture viewed the cross. When we celebrate the cross today, we forget at times its significance. We forget its roots. If any of us in this room were wearing a little electric chair around our necks, we'd get odd looks. And yet over time, the church began to embrace the imagery of the cross as central to what we believe. And the reason for that is because it is central to the theology of the New Testament. When Paul wrote his letters, even in the first century, he drives home the imagery of the cross. He talks particularly in Galatians about the imagery of the cross and boasting in the cross how this symbol of shame to us became a symbol of life. The symbol of death became a symbol of our salvation like we just sang. And so this morning, as we continue in our study of Matthew, what I want to do is look a bit at the meaning of the cross and why it's so central to Christianity, right? Because fundamentally, and again, we sang about it this morning, such a great group of songs that we sang about the cross. Jesus suffered death at the cross. Jesus suffered death in our place and gave us life in exchange. Now, we're going to see a lot of facets of that this morning. But I want to look this morning at why was the cross necessary at all? Secondly, what did it accomplish? When we talk about Jesus died for us on the cross, what are we saying? Why does this matter? And then thirdly, how do we respond to the cross? And of course, what we'll talk about this morning is that as we celebrated last week, the reason we have life at the cross is because Jesus didn't stay there. Because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. What happens at the cross is this great exchange where Jesus gives his life in exchange for ours. He took the death that we have earned, and then he rose again three days later so that he can give us life. I want you to look with me at Matthew chapter 27. I'm going to start in verse 33. We're going to read a number of verses this morning. Matthew chapter 27, as we begin to look at the meaning of the cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. When they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. 
In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. All right, when we read a passage like this, of course, we're struck with its gravity. Uh, Anybody who has seen the movie from a number of years ago, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie about the cross of Jesus, is struck by the intensity and the brutality of the cross. Uh, You get the sense from reading passages like this that, that what is depicted in The Passion of the Christ, it was that brutal and maybe more so. So the question emerges in our minds as we read this, uh, why was this necessary? Why did Jesus, the Son of God, have to endure such a terrible death, being abused, being mocked, and dying? I'm going to offer a couple of reasons this morning, and then we'll flesh those out. First of all, because our sin demanded justice. Our sin demanded justice. Now, all of us have an innate thirst for justice, whether we acknowledge it or not. Uh, I don't know how many of you grew up watching the original Wizard of Oz movie. Uh, That was kind of a tradition in our house. Whenever it came on, we would watch it either in black and white, and then it was colorized at some point. And uh, as you watch the movie, you you may remember the main antagonist is the Wicked Witch of the West, right? And the the Wicked Witch of the West is, is a terrible, terrible person. Uh, she's, she's got a green face that clues you in that she's a witch. She's got a pointy hat. She cackles. <laughs> she has an army of flying monkeys that she has bewitched to do her will. And they try to take over the land of Oz and defeat the nice wizard who we'll ignore for a moment is a deceiver, right? But, but she's trying to take over Oz. Right, And as the movie progresses, you hate this witch more and more and more until at the very end, when she dies, you're happy, aren't you? In fact, the munchkins sing a song. Ding dong, the witch is dead. The witch, right, And you clap along. You're so glad the witch is dead. Because all along, you have been yearning for justice. right? And she gets justice when somebody splashes a bucket of water on her face. And that always raises the question, how did somebody build such an evil empire if they're so vulnerable to water? Right? But you cheer and you sing the song. That's that thirst for justice. Right? On a more serious note, those of you who are old enough to remember September 11th, go back and ask yourself, when that moment in our history happened, how did you feel? What did you want to happen to the perpetrators of September 11th? At a minimum imprisonment, at a maximum, you wanted death. You wanted justice. All right, we have a thirst 
for justice because sin demands justice. But as we talked about last week, what we often forget is that we are sinners and our sin demands justice. And so Jesus goes to the cross because our sin demands justice. We are deserving of death and yet God is full of grace. It's interesting, as you read through Matthew 26 and 7, the sin of humanity is on full display, right? And and the patterns of their sin are similar patterns of sin that we see all the way throughout the Scripture, right? So for just a minute, think back to Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve first sinned against God, why did they sin against God? Fundamentally, they don't trust Him, do they? They're afraid. They are afraid. And God says to them, look, if you eat from that tree, you're going to die. And what does the serpent say? He says, you're not going to die. Here's what's going on. God doesn't love you. And God just wants to control you. And he knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will see everything correctly. God is withholding good things from you. And he stokes that fear. And in that fear, they disobey God and they eat from the fruit. Fear leads to sin. Right? Our fear leads to to sin. And you see that in Matthew 26 and 27. When we fail to trust God, then we sin against him. Look at the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. Why do they seek Jesus' death? Because they're afraid of losing their position. Why does Judas betray him? Because Judas loves money and he's afraid of being poor if he follows Jesus. So he sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Why does Pilate wash his hands? Because he's afraid of losing the peace and position he had worked for. Why does Peter say, I do not know him? Because he's afraid. And so he pushes Jesus away. Sin leads to fear and fear leads, excuse me, fear leads to sin. And sin leads to running away from God or sinning against others, right? If you've ever really been afraid, you know that you probably have one of two reactions, right? Fight or flight. You either run away or you put your fists up. I I will never forget when I was maybe eight or nine, my dad used to leave the house to go to work very early, 4.35 in the morning. And one morning I heard him. I happened to wake up. I heard him about to leave the house and he was kind of creeping out the front door so that nobody would wake up. And I decided I was gonna walk out and say goodbye. And so I walked out in the dark behind him and I said, daddy. And he turned around and goes, ha! And I thought, my dad's gonna hit me because I scared him. Fear leads to sin that hurts others and drives us away from God. And so our sin demands justice. Sin leads to death because in our sin, we run away from God. We push him away and we harm others. And so all of us are destined for death. That's why Romans chapter 6 says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The cross is necessary because our sin demands justice and only a perfect sacrifice can atone. It had to be Jesus as the perfect, infinite Son of God to pay for all of our sin that leads us to death. 
And so the cross is necessary because our sin demands justice and yet God is gracious. So as we go through Matthew 26 and 27, then what what did it accomplish? What is accomplished on the cross? Well, here's a theological word that uh, people who study theology use for for the death of Christ to describe what it is. There's this word substitutionary atonement. Right? The idea is that Jesus died in our place as a substitute. Atonement simply meaning that he covered over or destroyed sin and death for us. He atoned for our sin. If you go back into the Old Testament, what you'll notice is that the, the Israelites are always offering sacrifices for sin. Right, Sacrifices of bulls and goats and, and lambs and whatever they are ordered by God to sacrifice. Right, And every year there is the Day of Atonement. We know it as Yom Kippur where the high priest would go in and he would make a sacrifice for the people for any sins that they simply did not atone for throughout the year. Right, But when we get to the New Testament, the book of Hebrews clues us in to what really the Israelites already should have known was bulls and goats could never take away sin. There had to be a man who died for the sin of mankind to take our place as our substitute. There's, there's a great illustration of the substitutionary nature of Jesus' death found right here in the account in Matthew chapter 27. I want you to flip back one page. Matthew 27, start in verse 15. Right before the crucifixion. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message. Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night, I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Advice, Pilate, listen to your wife. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. Verse 26, then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Now, this is a fascinating passage that Matthew puts in here, right? The name Barabbas literally means son of his father, right? And the idea seems to be Barabbas is just like his ancestors. He's just like all of us. We're just like our ancestors. Sin runs in our veins. And here's Barabbas awaiting execution because he is a robber and a murderer. He has killed people. He has stolen things. Right, and Pilate comes and says, who should be set free? This murderer or this guy, Christ? And they go, Barabbas, set Barabbas free. And so here's Barabbas, and this is the best day of his life. Because he's about to be crucified. And he gets the call. You know what? You get to go free. And Jesus takes the place of Barabbas, who is just like all his ancestors who is just like you and me. Our own Chris Thompson wrote an article for a a magazine a few years ago about Barabbas and described what what must that moment have been like 
for the door to be open, the light to flood in. Hear those words, you're free because Jesus is gonna die instead. Right? We're all Barabbas. That is substitutionary atonement. Now you see this in the Old Testament as well. Remember Abraham in Genesis 22, commanded by God to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. And so Abraham gets up early in the morning. He gets the wood. He brings his son. He gets the, uh, what he needs to light the fire. They're on the way up. You remember, and Isaac says, hey, dad, where's the, where's the lamb? He says, God will provide. Abraham goes to the top of Mount Moriah and he bundles his son up and he grabs the knife. And right as he is about to kill his son, the angel of the Lord says, stop. Go get the ram from the thicket and replace your son with the ram. An unblemished lamb in place of your son's life. That's why Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 would say, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter is also calling to mind Passover when the death of a lamb put away from the people, the angel of death. The blood on the doorposts of their homes caused death to pass by. The death of a lamb for us. Jesus substituted his life for ours. It's interesting, this substitutionary concept pops up from time to time in popular culture as well. Uh, A few years ago, uh, when the movie Frozen came out, uh, my daughters for... I don't know, it felt like several years. It's probably just a couple of months. Uh, They watched it constantly. We sang all the songs. We went to the theater and we did the sing-along thing with the little ball, right? Let it go, right? And we did the whole frozen thing. But it's interesting, if you've seen the movie, you know that at the heart of that story is a story of sacrificial love. In fact, uh, one of the best definitions of love that I've ever heard in a movie is in this Disney movie from the snowman, Olaf. Who says love is giving up what you want for somebody else. Right? And if you remember the story, it's these two sisters who uh, rule over this fictional land. And one of them, Elsa, she has a gift that she can like, make ice and snow with her fingers and everything. Okay? And, and, and out of her fear, what happens? Well, she runs away one day and she freezes everything. The entire kingdom. In eternal winter. And then she goes up into a palace and she locks herself away and refuses to come down to help. And it creates all kinds of chaos, right? And there's this guy, Hans, that you think is good, but he turns out bad. And he is trying to take advantage of the situation. And right at the end of the movie, to make a very long story a little bit shorter, you may remember there's this moment where Hans is about to kill Elsa and he's got the knife up. And uh, if you followed the movie, there, there's no doubt that on some level you're like, yeah, Elsa kind of deserves this. She's created a lot of chaos and problems. But what happens right at the last minute? Her sister Anna stands right in front of the sword. Right? Now, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's going to turn out okay. okay? But I saw that the first time I saw it, I thought, what a great depiction of substitution. Anna, the sister who's been trying to save the kingdom all along, she steps in and says, I'll die in place of my sister. 
Fascinating that even in popular culture, we have this idea of an innocent victim dying for a guilty one. As we look at the substitutionary atonement of Christ, I want to point out three exchanges that happen on the cross. First one is this. We got his righteousness in place of our sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was perfect. Jesus did not deserve death. We are sinful. And at the cross, Jesus took the weight of all of our sin on himself, made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we could have his righteousness. He took our sin and credited our account with his righteousness. This is not too dissimilar from if you had a debt of millions of dollars. And Bill Gates came along and said, you know what, we're just going to switch bank accounts. I'll pay your debt. You take my money. Jesus swaps our sin, and gives us his righteousness. Righteousness in the place of sin, life in place of death. Jesus died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. As we talked about uh, earlier this morning and again last week, we know the story doesn't end, of course, at the cross. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And in rising from the dead, he defeated sin and he defeated death. He took, as Ross said earlier, he took what we're most afraid of, which is the consequence of our sin, the death that comes to us as a result of sin. And then when he rose again, he defeated it. So that all who know Jesus now have this exchange of death for life. We can return to life. We don't have to be afraid of death. Because all who know Jesus Christ will one day rise as Jesus has risen. And then the third exchange is relationship with God in place of alienation. Hebrews chapter 10, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us. Toward the end of Matthew 27, you'll remember that Jesus calls out these words from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? And the people believe he's calling for Elijah. He's actually quoting scripture as an innocent victim sacrificed on our behalf. He says, God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experiences this alienation from God that belonged to us. And then at Jesus' death, what happens? The veil of the temple split from top to bottom. The veil that separated us from the most holy place. Again, who could go in the most holy place? Only the high priest and only once a year and only under certain parameters. And he had to get in and do what he was there for and get out. If he did anything wrong, he would die. When Jesus died for us, the veil is split and a new way is open. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying is that now you and I can approach the holy of holies because through Jesus' death and resurrection, our sin is forgiven, our alienation is removed. All of the thousands of years that humanity spent running from God, Jesus says, I'm going to draw you in again. My righteousness for your sin, my life for your death, relationship with God in place of 
alienation. At the cross, Jesus gives himself for us. It helps us as we look at this then. This helps us understand why in the years following the death and resurrection of Jesus, the cross became the symbol of the Christian faith. Because the cross is shameful, but Jesus beat it. Because he died on a cross, but then he rose again. All of our hope of eternal life centers on the cross because of what Jesus did for us when he died and rose. All right, so how then do we respond? Let me offer a few thoughts this morning about how we respond. I'm going to give you a couple of uh, responses that I think are inappropriate and then a couple that are the way we want to respond. All right, how should we respond? First one that we don't want to do is this. Don't wallow in shame. All right, don't wallow in shame. Uh, The beauty of the cross is that Jesus died to give us God's righteousness in place of our sin. And I think all too often when we see depictions of the cross or we think about the cross, we're tempted to go to that and say, man, I am so awful. I don't deserve it. And you don't deserve it, right? But then we wallow in shame. And, and I've heard from time to time sermons on the cross that are like, look, Jesus died for you and you can't even be nice to your little brother. Right? I don't think that's the intended response of the cross. Right? Because as I look at passages like Romans chapter 8, I see that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus died and rose again to set us free from the burden of sin and death. So we don't wallow in shame, right? Repentance is a real part of the Christian life, but repentance is different from shame, right? Repentance means I say, God, I want to turn from my sin and follow you because in you is life. Shame says I have no hope. There's nothing that can make me better. I am a person of greed, pride, anger, lust, hatred. That's who I am. And there's no hope. The cross and resurrection of Jesus says you absolutely have the hope of life. So we don't wallow in shame. And secondly, we we don't try to repay. We don't try to repay. We can't repay. Again, you go back to that illustration of Bill Gates swapping his bank account with ours. Imagine that happens and I say, you know what, Bill, I am so grateful. Let me pay you back. I will give you everything that I make for the rest of my life. It wouldn't even make a dent, right? Unless you're making a whole lot more than the rest of us in this room. Billions of dollars that you could never repay. You cannot repay God for the sacrifice of Jesus. That's not why we obey. We don't obey because we think we can repay. An infinite sacrifice. All right, so how do we respond? Three things very quickly. Do accept his gift. Accept the gift. John 3, 16, the most famous passage in the New Testament. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You trust in what Jesus has done. God says, you just take the gift. Just take it. It's yours. 
If you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, the great news of the cross and resurrection of Jesus is that God extends his hand out and he says, you just have to believe in what Jesus has done for you. And you have eternal life. And you have a relationship with God. And you have forgiveness of sin. We do accept his gift. We do rejoice in new life. I love this passage from Romans. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Most of us know that passage. Verse 11. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Imagine for a minute that uh, you were in the position of Barabbas. You're sitting on death row. Right? And, and you get the phone call or somebody comes in and they say, you know what, you're, you're free now. You go like free, free? Yeah, totally free. No parole, no conditions, nothing. You walk out of here. You are considered an innocent person and you walk out of that jail. No more death hanging over your head. What would you do? I'll tell you what I would do. I would get all my friends and we're going out for Mexican food that night. The best meal we can find we're going to go out for. We're going to have a party because I have gone from death to life. Paul says we rejoice through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have life. When you think about Jesus' death and resurrection, do you rejoice? That you've gone from death to life because I think that joy then will drive us toward a deeper love of God, which will drive us toward a more faithful obedience and witness in the world. The more we process the reality of what Jesus has done, the more we will respond with joy. Joyful people are people who draw others to Jesus. So we rejoice in his life. And then thirdly, we follow his lead. We follow his lead. Again, not because we're trying to repay, not because we feel guilty, because life is found in Jesus. And the cross reshapes the way we approach every moment of trial and suffering and every moment of joy in our lives. Peter would put it this way, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Right, for those who know Jesus, then what we do is we turn and we follow step by step in the pattern he set because we know that aligning our lives with the character of Jesus Christ, that's where life is found. That's where joy is found. And to be people who witness of the greatness of Jesus Christ in the world, the best way to do that is to follow in his steps moment by moment. So even in our suffering, we can rejoice that Jesus suffered for us and showed us that there can be joy, even in suffering. Even in the face of death, we know that for those who know Jesus Christ, death has no power. And we follow his steps. Paul would say it this way in Romans chapter 6, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The death that comes with sin, we've been freed from it. And Paul says, now you consider yourself because of Jesus, you're dead to sin. Sin can no longer rule your life. 
by the power of the Spirit that lives in you. You're alive to God. And so moment by moment, we follow his lead in joy and in trust. We no longer allow that fear to lead us into lack of trust for God. We no longer run away, but we draw near because we've been cleansed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then with joy, we share the message that Jesus Christ defeated death and is alive and welcomes any who will come. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful for your word. We are so overwhelmed at the magnitude of the cross. Only you, God, only you could take a symbol of humiliation and pain and shame and death and turn it into a symbol of life and victory. No, no other God can do that. No, no human being has the power to do that. You did that through Jesus. And so we thank you. We pray that we would rejoice. May the message of the cross never grow stale to us or old, but continue through your spirit to make it fresh and real in our hearts. And I pray that we would respond by following in the lead of Jesus to draw ever nearer to you through the power of your spirit because we know that in you, that's where life is. I pray we would turn from sin and run toward you, not because we're trying to pay you back, not because we want to wallow in guilt, but because we know that's, that's best for us. You made the world so that life is in you and you paved a way for us to draw near to you again. I pray through our lives as we rejoice in the love of Jesus, others would be drawn to him. God, we're grateful for all of this time and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.